the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Coming up this hour, we're going to reflect on President Biden's speech last night. And then what would Jesus say to the Church of America today? You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Happy Thursday, almost to the weekend. Hope you're all doing. We're getting there. We can see it. It's like we can see it in front of us. Even my kids. This morning, my kids were like, Mom, it's almost Friday. (laughs) (laughs) When I wake my daughter up first thing in the morning, and she's never very happy about it, my youngest daughter, I always like tell her, hey, it's close to the weekend. (laughs) 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 Like that's the encouragement. So we're glad that you are with us today. It's a huge day, Aubrey, uh, because you're not a sports fan. You're not going to feel this, but it's NFL Draft Day. I woke up like what? It's Christmas today. What? It's NFL Draft Day? Oh, yeah. wow. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture like your okay. feelings when a new okay. Marvel movie is coming out. Or, okay. Okay. Uh, that excitement, you, that anticipation. When you were about to watch a new WandaVision or whatever it okay. was. That's how, right. that's how I feel today. I, uh, oh, I'm excited th- for you then. I, I yeah. can connect to that. Uh, my wife always tries to watch a little, like she, you know, she'll sit while I'm watching NFL draft. And I know it takes like five, 10 minutes. And she's like, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's over. How was it? No, no, no. Like I'm done. I'm not doing that. Oh, no, I see. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> the NFL draft goes for like three days. What? So. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. I'm sure Kevin will watch it. So I will sit beside him and probably look on Pinterest, but I will be there. And that way we can talk about it. <laughs> If that's not the picture of a 21st century marriage right there, my husband would be with him while he watches the draft while I'm on Pinterest. Oh, that's kind of messed up, isn't it? Yeah, I am very excited for the NFL draft tonight. So uh, looking forward to it. But last night uh, was President Biden. It's kind of like commemorating his first 100 days. It was mm-hmm. his first speech to a joint um, session of Congress. He's, he spoke. Yeah. Now, it was very different where there's normally 1,600 uh, congressmen and women there. There were 200, I believe, very spread out and masked and all that stuff. Uh, I'm going to, well, let's ask you, did you watch any of it? And do you generally like watching political speeches, kind of the con- the big ones like that, like happened last Yeah, night? so I, I watched some of it because it did feel historic. And I'll, <laughs> I'll just say, I'll just put my cards on the table. I, You know, whether or not you agree with these women politically, because I know lots of people don't, okay? Uh, I wanted to see these two women on the dais. I mean, that felt so historical to have the Speaker of the House and the Vice President, two females on the stage. So I was watching it more for that than really for content, which sounds bad, but it's true. I wanted to see it. I wanted this historic moment to be marked in my mind. And then you turned it off. <laughs> no, I did. I did watch some of it. I felt like, you know, uh, you know, he made some Biden made some bipartisan effort, which I appreciated, like a few nods to conservatives. He certainly had a sense of urgency that our country needs right now. He seemed hopeful. 
I appreciated that his rhetoric or his, he doesn't speak with rhetoric. Like he seems to be a little less, uh, it's just, it, it, there's a marked contrast between his yep. style and Trump's style. We, we can't deny that. The- I definitely think that $4 trillion in spending is really ambitious and that's <laughs> going to be rough. Um, but I, you know, I just, I appreciated stylistically. Again, even if you don't agree with his politics, I agree. I appreciated stylistically. He seems to really understand this is a moment in our nation when we have to have some unity and some peace. Yeah, I appreciate that. That certainly is stark, the different style. I like good use Definitely. of the word ambitious with four to six trillion dollars of <laughs> I mean, spending. I mean, uh, that's yeah. We might use the word problematic, but hey, everybody has their different views. Uh, we, we did want to play a little bit of some of the highlights, some of the, uh, what he did talk about. Let's listen to this for a second. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President. No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. My fellow Americans, while the uh, setting tonight is familiar, this gathering is just a little bit different. Reminder of the extraordinary times we're in. Throughout our history, presidents have come to this chamber to speak to Congress, to the nation, and to the world, to declare war, to celebrate peace, to announce new plans and possibilities. Tonight, I come to talk about crisis and opportunity, about rebuilding the nation, revitalizing our democracy, and winning the future for America. Okay, but as we said, uh, lots of uh, things that were talked about in there. I guess I struggle watching these at all because Here's okay. You said cards on the table. Here's my cards on the table. Okay. The big, the thing that drives me up a wall in these speeches is the standing up and sitting down and standing up. And (laughs) it's just, it feels like showmanship and nothing's like there's so much ceremony, right? (laughs) And they like look to the other side. Oh, you're not standing. Who stood for what? Literally, Ted Cruz was falling asleep last night. (laughs) And I'm like, nothing's going to change. So I, I, I find my cynical nature coming yeah, out. Yeah, sure. Certainly. Certainly. Uh, I just go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, no, no. You go ahead. No, I was going to say, interestingly, then at the end, there's always the other party has kind of the rebuttal, right? The mm-hmm. rebuttal. And and uh, Senator Tim Scott from Florida or no, South Carolina, uh, who is the only I believe the only sitting African-American senator yeah, on the Republican Party. Uh, a lot of people think he's got presidential ambitions. Yeah, yep, there's rumors uh, about that. That is right. Tim Scott gave the rebuttal last night. Uh, Let's listen to a couple seconds of that. Our nation is starving for more than empty platitudes. We need policies and progress that brings us closer together. But three months in, the actions of the president and his party are pulling us further and further apart. I want to have an honest conversation about common sense and common ground about this feeling that our nation is sliding off its shared foundation and how we move forward together. Growing up, I never dreamed I would be standing here tonight. When I was a kid, my parents divorced. My mother, my brother, and I moved in with my grandparents. Three of us. 
sharing one bedroom. I was disillusioned and angry, and I nearly failed out of school. I've also experienced a different kind of intolerance. I get called Uncle Tom and the N-word by progressives, by liberals. Just last week, a national newspaper suggested my family's poverty was actually privilege. Because a relative owned land generations before my time. Believe me, I know firsthand our healing is not finished. And I found uh, what interestingly, Tim Scott, the headline thing that he said, Aubrey, is that America is not a racist country. Uh, and as happens on Twitter, he got uh, I, eviscerated. Thank you. There's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. That in a way that was really uncomfortable. There was uh, it was trending the phrase Uncle Tim oh. uh, last night, and yeah. I, what struck me was huh, how to put this. That so often it just uh, it, it seems like fair games to call somebody one thing when then they call somebody on your side that thing. It, it's not fair game, and and there's like something weird in our culture right now where. Uh, I, I get I get mad if you if you say bad things about me, but I'm going to say bad things about you. It's just do you get what I'm saying? It's a really yeah. weird dynamic. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly you know I certainly disagree with Tim Scott that there isn't racism in the country. Uh, that's a hard pill to swallow, and yet I these slurs against him feel totally racist. Like I'm like, (laughs) this is not, this is not acceptable behavior. And this is what we talk about a lot on the common good. Like there has to be a place for public discourse, for public disagreement without slandering a person's character or soul or name calling. Like that's just petty. It's kind of embarrassing. I'm like, America, what are you, what are you doing? You can disagree with someone and you can say, I disagree with this statement. You can put that online. You can say why you disagree with it. But when you resort to name calling, it's immature, it's childish, and it's not thoughtful, right? Like we're not thoughtfully engaging with the debate. That's right. That's right. And there was even an article on The Hill today because much of what he got just eviscerated for, your use of a good word there, was him saying America is not a racist country. And then an article at The Hill today, Kamala Harris said America is not a racist country and she's not getting the same attack. She's not getting eviscerated. Yeah, that's interesting. It was such a spotlight into many things that's wrong about our political punditry and Twitter and social media and everything last night. Like you said, you could agree with him. You could agree with Biden. You could agree with Tim Scott. You could disagree with each of them. But we can do it civilly and we can have a conversation that at least moves the ball forward. That's it. Uh, and, and I think that's why I struggle even to watch those things at all. Like I was like, I'm watching baseball tonight. A <laughs> so, <laughs> little easier yeah. to do that. That's true. That's right. That's right. Coming up next, what would Jesus say to the Church of America? Gospel Coalition asked, would Jesus turn over tables in today's church? We're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. All the world tries to get in. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Happy to have you with us. Hope you're having a good Thursday afternoon. That song that we listened to coming in out of the break, that song that we were listening to, uh, comes right out of this Gospel Coalition article written by Caroline Cobb. 
and her new song called Turn the Tables. And, and it's, an, it's an idea of what the article has asked this question, would Jesus turn over tables in today's church? But mm. I want to kind of expand it beyond that to start here, Aubrey, and just ask, what do you think, uh, albeit from us to kind of uh, speak for Jesus, but let's right. do that here. <laughs> what would we, we see in scripture, especially in this part where Jesus is turning over the tables, especially in the parts where he confronts the Pharisees, we see uh-huh. Jesus say, very direct things to the yeah. to the religious people. Yeah. Uh, and so I wanted to ask this question. What, what do you think, what are some of the things that come to mind when we ask, what would Jesus say to the church, particularly the Church of America, the evangelical Ooh. Church of America today? What are some things that come to mind? You know, I think the hard part for me is I always want it to be like, I always want Jesus to be saying, I love you. I approve of you. I like that's the Jesus I want. But I understand that this Jesus who like wielded a whip, you know, is no yeah. joke. And this is actually, I think, what makes God so powerful is we see his his uh, heart for justice and really that we're not making his house into something it ought not to be. Mm. I, you mm. know, again, I, I feel uncomfortable speaking for Jesus, but I certainly think there are ways that we are not living up to um, who the church is supposed to be, specifically in ways that the church has become like an industry, like mm. a, a big business, that almost this sort of consumer Christian culture where we're like spending so much money on, I don't know, famous people. Here I am an author wanting people to buy my books, right? So I like, I listen, I carry this tension, but like the books and the Bible studies and the podcasts and the t-shirts and the different kinds of Bibles. And you do have to wonder, you have to go, Lord, have mercy on us, please. I think we are, we're doing the best we can, but we are certainly missing the mark and maybe making our own Christian industry an idol. Actually, not maybe we are making our own Christian resource industry an idol. And that's something to I think we really need to get on our knees about and take seriously. What do you that's think? A gr- that's a great point. I think the article points out this culture of commercialism in today's church. I think you've put your finger on it that says, uh, it's like we've got our own little bubble, right? This church yeah. world. And and inside that bubble, there is, like you said, merchandise and there is music and there is all these different things that, that, that you know, why did Jesus turn over the tables? One of the reason was that they were, they were, you know, exchanging money and, and doing and selling things in the temple. And Jesus said, no, you, you, you are not going to do this in the house of God. And yeah, yeah, it is dangerous. Um, I think that's a big one. Now, you, as you said, you're an author. I've yet to tell you the story, by the way, that I spent two entire summers in college uh, working for uh, working forty hour weeks for a company called Testaments. Have I told you the story? By the way, um, no, but I know what Testaments is. Okay, let's hear about this. Oh, I spent one summer calling. I literally called every Christian bookstore. I, the, my whole summer was an entire big notebook of every Christian bookstore we could find across the country. And calling them and introducing them to testaments, which if you're unfamiliar with testaments are, (laughs) are the mints with a message is what our tagline was. And so their packages, their packages of mints that had Bible verses on the end of the packages and the mints had a a cross on them. And uh, that is what made testaments testaments. And so 
and then my second summer, I traveled to like uh, like festivals and shows and all this stuff and sold mints. <laughs> Brian, this is like a whole new side of you I didn't know about. I feel very excited to learn more about your. So I didn't your start with testament. testaments. <laughs> yes, I did not start testaments, but I, a guy from my church actually did it. He's like, "You want no. a summer job?" I'm like, "Yes, You're I like, do." Yes, yes, I want to go to concerts and sell breath mints so Christians can have fresh breath. Fresh breath with a message. I'm sorry. I mean, so-, so I think this is like part of the conversation, right? Because there's nothing wrong with a commodity like breath mints that have Bible verses on them, right? Correct. There's nothing wrong with a commodity like books that I'm writing and selling. The problem, I think, is when we begin to commodify our worship or when we commodify mm. our Lord and Savior. Like that's where we really have to walk that line in a way that I think isn't just careful, but is like deeply intentional, that we are not even going to err on the side of turning our God into any type of idol, turning our worship into any type of idol that isn't honoring him. You know, That's right. That's well put. I also think uh, if commercialization is one of them, I would also add that if we think about what would Jesus say to the church today, and, and I don't point a finger in this, I'm going, yeah, to me too, right? right. Uh, I, I think also... Uh, I picture Jesus coming and speaking to our church or to whatever church and, and, and just saying, you guys don't, you lack the urgency hmm. as to what's actually going on, right? Like wow. the book of Revelation, when, when Jesus says to the church of Laodicea that you are, uh, you are lukewarm. Like every mm-hmm. time I read that, I go, yeah, that feels like, like the Western, like the American church right there. Certainly that's true. Yeah. That the church in Laodicea had a lot of money. They had a lot of mm-hmm. comfort. They thought that mm-hmm. they had God's blessing because they had a lot of money and a lot of comfort. And Jesus is like, I'm going to spit you out because Ooh. of your, uh, because of your, um, lukewarmness. Yeah. Uh, and every time I read that, I go, that feels like here, right? Yeah, that does. feels like here. And, and I think Jesus's call would be, Hey, church, like there is urgent, eternal matters going on right now that, that you're just kind of, numbing and entertaining yourself away from and you're missing hmm. the whole point i i, I think uh, i think there's an urge because you you've you lived in where zambia did you say Is that where you yeah said? yeah we lived in zambia for a year in andola zambia you know i've had a chance to go to africa and some other places and there is an urgency when you go to those places <laughs> for their faith that, I mean, that does right. not exist here yeah uh, and then when i read my bible it drips of urgency right yeah. and of priority and so i do think uh, you know, the idol, like you said, of of pleasure and comfort uh, is such a huge deal. What's one more thing, whether you want to talk about that one or what's another thing you think Jesus would say to the church? Oh, man. No, I'm just I'm like soaking up what you just said, Brian. That's so good that I, I do feel like we've lost our urgency. I, I, I would say, too, um, <clears throat> I think sometimes we so we're in maybe like a lull, right? Like there's a there's a, a Ugandan theologian named Emmanuel Katangole, and he talks about how the church has really like fallen asleep, right? And I do think we have fallen asleep to the fact that around the world, the persecuted church is literally losing their lives for yes. the sake of the gospel. And I I think that's another word that Jesus would be like, open your eyes and look mm. at your brothers and sisters around the world. Look at their suffering. Look at their devotion to me. And uh, church in America, it's time to step up and wake up. Mm. 
That's well put. And again, we don't say these as in like, hey, we got these all. No, no, me too. I I think I'm speaking with passion because I'm like speaking to myself like, oh, man. I love it. It's it's something we'll get back to. Ian and I used to try to every now and then read stories of what's going on worldwide to be like people like this is what's going on around the world. People are literally dying uh, for claiming Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And like you said, I think. I think not just the idols, but the big hurdles for the American church are things like comfort and pleasure and just this kind of numbness of like, I don't know, life's pretty good. And, right. uh, and and that and then we open up our Bibles and we go, why does it look so different? It just mm. looks so different. And we wrestle with it. So I, that's good. I, I think that is helpful for us uh, to remember. What would Jesus yes. say to the church of today? Well, coming up next, we want, we're going to continue a conversation we started yesterday uh, when we had on Bob Smetana about uh, sermon writing, plagiarism, research assistance, all of this, because here's what's interesting, Aubrey. I don't know if you saw it. This debate caught fire on Twitter last night <gasps> really? in the Christian world. Yeah. It really did. And so I was like, let's jump back into that because yeah, you and I didn't definitely. get a chance. We didn't really get a chance to reflect upon it. We heard great things from Bob, but we didn't get to share our thoughts. We are going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. Uh, Hope that you are enjoying your Thursday. All right, Aubrey, yesterday we were joined, and I I loved our interview yesterday. If you missed it, go get our podcast. Uh, The interview we were able to do with Bob Smetana uh, from the Religion News Service, and he wrote an article for the Religion News Service called If You Have Eyes, Plagiarize. When borrowing a sermon goes too far. And Bob really unpacked why this is a big deal, why he wrote the article, just kind of how much of this goes on. Uh, And part of it, when you do an interview, you get to ask questions, but you don't really get to give your thoughts on it. And so I even had the thought, let's circle back and talk about that. And then last night I was scrolling through Twitter uh, and Bob's article was kind of blowing up in terms of the number of pastors, big name pastors uh, and and theologians and authors who were weighing in on this. It got mm-hmm. – uh, I saw, you know, Scott McKnight and Derwin Gray and Josh Howerton, and this morning I saw Sky Jatani uh, weighed in on it. Like people really kind of uh, – there was some passion around it. And so the wow. background is this. The background is this, that increasingly – and I would say it's fair to say in bigger churches, mega churches especially – uh, preachers are, uh, um, they have research assistants, ghost mm-hmm. writers, yep. people helping form, and sometimes more than helping, sometimes people literally writing sermons for them. And yep. then what's happening in smaller churches, they're also finding is that oftentimes smaller church pastors will just swipe the big church pastor stuff and just p- preach it verbatim, right? Right, so, <laughs> right, right. Uh, Bob's article had to do with a pastor who basically got found out to just be taking Mark Driscoll's sermons and going with them. And so it's gotten to be this conversation when it comes to preaching, when it comes to like your world, also writing books Mm -hmm. and other things. When is when is it plagiarism? Uh, When is it borrowing? And Mm -hmm. then it's kind of moved out to. Uh, is it weird when pastors are using research assistants yeah. and writers? Like that seems to be what the the sermon is not about. Anyway, that's the whole kind of a uh, uh, kitten caboodle, if you will. Yep. I love that phrase. 
so you take it any direction you want uh, off of our conversation with Bob yesterday. What's the issue at hand here? So I, okay, so I, you know, I am a writer mm-hmm. and I have lots of writer friends who use ghostwriters or use assistants. And I don't know that I think that's any problem ethically, especially if they thank them either in the acknowledgments of the mm. book or some you'll, you know, you see a lot of book covers that say XYZ book by famous pastor. And at the bottom, it'll say with yes name, that person is their ghostwriter or their assistant. All right. Let me ask now, you a question because I've yeah. always wondered that. So yeah. big pastor X or whoever and so mm-hmm. on. Am I safe to assume the smaller name at the bottom wrote the vast majority, if not oh, all yes. of that book? Absolutely. You are okay. safe to assume that. Now, of course, every circumstance is different and, and each pastor does it their own way. I know like a like a Scott McKnight, he sometimes does a with. He's actually intentional about empowering that person. Okay. So, we, so that they are um they're it's known that they're writing. And then what ends up happening is that person will publish a book next and he'll write the forward for their book. So oh, cool. you know, there's, yeah. there's ways to do it ethically. I, um, and a lot of times, I mean, you know, a lot of times the, the ghost writer or the assistant writer will take content that the person has already preached or they'll sit down in interviews right. and gather material or they'll follow them around and learn things. So it's not like they're coming up with information or content or fodder, like, out of nowhere. It's based from that person's preaching or life or conversation. So it's not that it's like just made up. Um, But that does happen more consistently than I think people realize, especially Mm. when it's a, when it's a big name. Now I know also know a lot of big name preachers, pastors who write all of their own material because they're creatives and they want to express themselves that way. So it's not always, but yeah, if you see that with that, that is typically a ghostwriter or an assistant writer. Now, the the thing about ghostwriters too is that they often don't get mentioned. That's why they're called ghostwriters, and that's in mm. their contract. Like they get paid a good amount of money, but their contract says no one will ever know I wrote this or whatever the the really? NBA conversation is. So, you know, that's that can be an ethical ethical dilemma, or it might not be. I mean, it just sort of depends on how you see intellectual property. And again, it, this is a very American conversation, like what's mine and what's yours. And I, I, you know, and I think the sermon thing is tricky too. I'm just going to keep talking and then I'll let you talk. Yeah, let's get, no, go. I want to hear what you have to say, but let's turn this to sermons in particular. Yeah. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. I think the sermon thing is, is tricky because for instance, I have some friends who write sermon series for pastors and like these pastors subscribe to a sermon series and it will go out to them and they have all their content for like eight to 10 weeks and they make it their own. They add their own stories or they add their own anecdotes, but mostly the sermon is either outlined or researched or written for them. Even Craig Groeschel's church does that. He offers sermon series he like does. line by line for pastors who want to subscribe to that. So I, I, you know, I don't know that it's really a big problem unless I think this is the hard part. You want the pastor who's preaching that sermon to say something about, hey, I got this sermon from this resource, or I am I'm using this based on so and so's material. Like yeah. you I, I at least as a parishioner, I just want to know that. I don't know why. It just feels a little more honest and it feels like it has some integrity. So I don't yeah. mind they're doing it. I just want to, I want them to acknowledge they're doing it. 
Okay, so yeah. what do you think? I've talked way too much. No, no, that was really good. And and I guess I would want to ask this question. And maybe this is a little old school of me, <laughs> but I think a lot of people are probably thinking this out there. Isn't the point of the sermon like I, local church pastor, mm-hmm. studying and praying and thinking about what my local congregation needs to hear uh, and, and that I'm the one who knows that context? Isn't uh, That's where I get hung up on this. And I understand – I don't understand the big church pastor, the mega church pastor. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's where the disconnect is. And that's where a lot of people were writing like – I, I don't know. I, I got into being a pastor in some level to go, hey, I want to study and unpack and then, pre- you know, um, present this to my congregation and wrestle Certainly. with it together. Certainly. I can't imagine. And again, I'm in a much smaller church than yeah. what we're talking about, but it feels like the corporate, the corporate nature of church. This screams of that. Like it almost screams of like, I don't have time to write a sermon because I've yeah. got all these other organizational yeah. things to do or these side projects. Whereas I feel like that's kind of now someone like Sky Jatani wrote today that this is why we shouldn't have sermon centric churches. Mm. Uh, but it does feel to me like, like you're taking that, which is maybe the most important part of your job and kind of passing it off to someone else. That's where I start to have a problem with this. Well, let me, let me push back on that a little bit because I, I do think it's a question of, is that the most important part of your job in America? Right. It certainly is the, the, the teacher, especially in the evangelical world is the most important person. That's, That's right. not true. Every place else, right? The apostle mm-hmm. is the prophet is the, and so I, I mean, I love teaching and you love teaching, Brian. So for me, it's the most important part. For you, it's the most important part. It's not everywhere. And again, we're very individualistic in America. And so I actually think there's something quite beautiful about like, I, this is different than what you're talking about. But I like a kind of a team teach approach where you get together with a group of people, men, women, different ages, different ethnicities. Let's write sermons together. And then each person could take a turn delivering it or however you wanted to do that so that you have different perspectives and different angles and different viewpoints. And you're staying true to scripture, of course. But because we're a communal faith, I like the idea of communal sermon writing, even though I know that's not always practical because of schedules or whatnot. Yeah, I think you're right. I, for me, the whole thing, whether it be a book or particularly in this conversation, a sermon, is be honest about it. That's, That's all. it. Be yep. honest yep. about it. Because like Ian, when he was out here at Community, they did better than anybody I know. That church does like team prep. Yeah, prep, they do a you know? great job of that. But they're also very honest about it. You go to that church and you know the way they put sermons together. They're not like in some dark corner, like like you said, like, oh, that person's writing, but we're pretending they're not. They're, we're pretending uh, they're not, right. Exactly. Like, just be honest. Be honest, whether it's your book or your uh, or your sermon, and, and be honest about how it's happening. Uh, yeah, man, this is a much bigger topic. Like I said, uh, go check out Bob Smetana on Twitter and you'll see how this just blew up. Uh, and, and it's been really big. Well, coming up next, Aubrey's going to share a very personal story that she talked about on Facebook last night and also in her book, The Louder Song, as we talk about do you, how do you deal with tragedy in your life? We're going to do that next year on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us 
on a rainy Thursday afternoon. Spring's going to get here at some point, I think. I think I it's coming. I feel like coming. we had it, or we had summer, really. We had <laughs> summer. Now we're into early fall. Now we're into early fall, and we'll see if we got spring or not. <laughs> it is. I'm constantly looking at the weather because of how much, how many baseball games, and my daughter starts softball this weekend. So we, oh, wow. I'm that dad now who sits at games. Yep. So I'm always like, am I going to be freezing? And it's supposed to be nice this weekend. So Oh, good. Okay. That should be uh, fun for you. Uh, one of the things, uh, one of our goals in doing a show together is for people to get to know us a little bit, right? Like you, we, yeah. we don't want to just be robotic and talk about this issue or that issue, but we want to open up our lives a little bit and say, this is who we are, get to know, you know, so that people, if you listen to the show for a while, you kind of have an understanding. Oh, Brian's got this many kids, kind of this stage of life. Mm-hmm. Aubrey's got this. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, we kind of want to, to allow you to get to know us a little bit. And so yesterday I was, you were, I was on Facebook and you, um, I think you posted on Facebook. I did. Yeah. Uh, a, a very personal story and you've touched on it before here on the show, but, uh, and you also write about it in your book, uh, the louder song. And so I, I sent you a, a note and said, Hey, you want to talk about this? And, and you said, sure. And so, uh, it's, it's a kind of a, a, a tragic story from your background and your yeah. family's history that is, yeah. is really hard. And I thought it would be good though to talk about, uh, not just so people could get to know you a little bit more and know this, but also, for people out there who are going through tragedy right now, mm-hmm. right? All sorts yeah. of tragedy, all sorts of struggles. I appreciate you being willing uh, to share your story. Why don't you share the story of what happened? I don't, uh, you know, however many years it was ago sure. yesterday, I believe. Yeah. Uh, yep. And and then we'll have a little talk about grief and and processing the okay. real tragedies of life. Okay. So yes, yesterday was the seventh anniversary of my cousin Cameron, who I was very close to going up. I mean, growing up, Cameron was like a brother to me. We spent every summer together in Texas at our grandparents. Um, and Cameron was snowshoe hiking in Crater Lake National Park, Oregon, and he stepped out onto a snow cornice. He actually took a picture which I still have on my phone. He texted it to me. Um, just if you haven't seen Crater Lake, Google it when you're not driving because it <laughs> is one of the most beautiful locations on earth. I mean, people call it heaven on earth. It's so mm. amazing. But he took the picture, he sent it, and then apparently Cameron plummeted to his death. And so mm. seven years later, the park rangers still haven't found his body. They have searched and searched and searched, and he is somewhere in the waters of Crater Lake. And... um you know, that was a season, going to get emotional talking about it. That was a yeah. season when oh, there was a lot of things going on in, in our family's life. Um, our son had been diagnosed with some issues with the spinal cord. And so we knew he was going to have spinal cord surgery coming up and a lot of ongoing care. Hmm. Um, I ended up just a few months later getting really, really sick with an autoimmune disease that I still have today. And so, I mean, the tragedy of Cameron's death alone would have been enough to just make you lose your mind, but all of it together. And it wasn't just that he died, right? Because people die, right? but it was the nature of his death. And you just, those are one of those moments when you just think, God, how could you allow this to happen? That's you right. know, he That's was, right. he was um, engaged. He actually has two little kids. Um, and uh, it was quite a painful loss for our family. Um, mm. And, there's there's now a bench at Crater Lake with his name on it, which is really, really special. And the the folks at Crater Lake have been incredible. I mean, even over seven years, they still touch base with Cameron's parents. They really? still, 
yeah, they still, every time the weather warms up, they still search for him. I mean, they're just very faithful people. So I can only give them um, the honor that they deserve. But it certainly for all of us, and even just the year we've all been through with the pandemic and losing loved ones um, and any nonsensical loss, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's you just it's very, very difficult to come to terms with. Yeah. Yeah. And so how much of what happened there, um, you know, drove kind of your diving into the the book you wrote, right? A louder song, right? About lament and about that. Uh, Was one connected to the other? Like you just kind of dove in, like, I got to get my arms around what it means that life's not always going to be perfect and life's not always going to just be wrapped up in a bow. How did those connect to each other? Yeah. So I was really, 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 um, and I'll try to make this story short, but I was really, really struggling with the reality of, is God good? Mm-hmm. Um, which sounds so basic, right? But I've been a Christian for like 30 years and I'm like, sure. wait, wait, God, are you who you say you are? And I began in the middle of that. And this is a story I tell in the first chapter, so I won't tell all of it, but God, I began to just pray, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. I need you to show up here. Cause I, I mean, I was just devastated and through a series of events, the Lord showed up at, actually I was at a lament concert of all things. And the Lord showed up powerfully and spoke to me and helped me realize that even though there was pain and suffering, he was not unaware of it. He was actually in the middle of it. And he was Mm. in the process of singing a louder song over it. And so that really, that moment was kind of the impetus for me writing. I began to explore laments throughout scripture, songs of lament, and then um, the spiritual discipline of lament, which ended up being kind of my tether back to faith in God in a much more tangible way, in a much realer way than I would say even before Cameron's death. And in fact, if you don't mind, Brian, there's a, you know, there's not a lot of lament songs in the evangelical church, but I needed some songs to express my pain. And there was a song that I listened to. You and I have talked about our love for Les Mis. (laughs) There's a song from Les Mis called Empty Chairs and Empty Tables that I listened to again and again. And it's a depressing song. I want to play a few seconds of it. But it spoke some things that I needed to be able to pray to God. There's a grief that can't be spoken. There's a pain that goes on and on. Empty chairs at empty tables. Now my friends are dead and gone. So anyway, that's Eddie Redmayne singing, who's just mm. a fantastic singer. But I love that, that song. Isn't it beautiful? But just, I I think what I found beautiful, what I I found so powerful about God's word, about scripture, is that like that song, God allows us to express our most horrific pain and sorrow and suffering to him. Like our pain can be a prayer. Our Mm. anger can be a prayer. Our grief can be a prayer. And because God knows suffering and because God aligns himself with suffering people, because Jesus himself has suffered in those moments, we find his presence. We don't find answers. We cannot wrap it up in a bow, but we find yeah. his presence so tangibly when we allow ourselves to pour our hearts out to God. Yeah. And um, that, so it doesn't make it easy. It doesn't even make it make sense. But you just go, God, you are you are so good because you meet us in the like darkest depths of our, our, our dark nights of the soul. Right. That's great. That's great. What would you say with the last minute or so person out there in their car? They're in the midst of tragedy. They're in the midst mm-hmm. of like not just a struggle, but like like life is crumbling tragedy. 
what's the first step? What would you encourage that person to do to even go down this road a little bit? Yeah, I, I would just say this. Um, your pain is real. You are allowed to feel everything you're feeling. God is not mad at you for that. God is not ashamed of you for that. And I would begin just taking it back to the Father. Just like, mm-hmm. I mean, just as real and raw as you can, even in your car right now. If you need to cry out, you cry out, God, I hate this. God, this is horrible. God, where are you? And then just ask God to show up. That simple prayer that I prayed, God, if you're real, make yourself real to me. And then open your eyes. The most dangerous thing you can do in this moment is to walk away from God because it's Mm -hmm. so tempting to do it or numb yourself. I want you to lean in like you've never leaned in before with honesty, with integrity, with all of the grief you can, and just ask the God who loves you to meet you. And I'm telling you, he will because he's good. Oh, that's a good word. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate you. I know it can't be easy. Thanks. I mean, Thanks even for letting you me talk about, about it. it, Brian. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But we wanted to do that because we know there are people out there struggling and hopefully that's yeah. helpful and, uh, and a good word. Well, coming up next, we're going to ask this question. How do you influence your kids for Christ? Something all of us parents really want to do. How do you do it? We're as two parents, we're going to talk about that next year on The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Coming up this hour, how to influence your kids for Christ. And then we're going to do a fun top five list. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good here on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Thanks so much for being with us today. And Aubrey and I are both parents. Aubrey has, what do you got, three sons. What are the ages again? I got them. They're three, uh, 14, 11, and nine. I don't want to embarrass your family or your kid, but you posted it. So it's out there. The (laughs) wedding picture, the wedding picture of you and Kevin and your three sons and the disdain (laughs) your youngest son had for taking a picture was every parent's feeling at a wedding. That was, I mean, yeah, you can find it if you want to follow me on Instagram or I'm at obsamp, but he just was so. Yeah, he was not having it. He did want not want any more pictures and we couldn't do anything. We were like bribing him, like, we'll get you a toy, we'll pay you twenty dollars. <laughs> and he just like, Nope, I'm done. I have had enough. I'm sick of it. And he just wouldn't smile. Was he smiling before or was this like an entire wedding picture like stance? <laughs> no, no, no. Taking? We have we have some moments where he was smiling, but I think at that point we had just taken a ton of family photos. You know how you do at weddings, and he was just like, I'm done now. And he just, he's a strong personality. So there's not much you can do about it. And actually, I think it's hilarious. Like, I don't get mad at that. I laugh sure. at that. But, you know, it was gonna, The joke is that was supposed to be our family Christmas card. And I mean, now it just can't be because he oh, looks no, it so should, angry. It should definitely be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. We'll as be real know, for once at Christmas. Yeah. As you know, my wife is a photographer, Carrie mm-hmm. from Photography. And, uh, it's so funny. She will do family photo shoots. And then there are times where she has to swap the head out from like one picture to another. (laughs) That is awesome. She's a great photographer, by the way. She is. She is. I'm I'm, I'm hoping the business takes off to the point that I can just quit all my jobs and, you know, just put my feet up. (laughs) Well, you're just going to leave me hanging here. Maybe Carrie can come and join me. She'll take over. Exactly. She would love that. So, yes, yes. Uh, But anyway, you've got three kids. I have three kids as well. I have a 17-year-old daughter, a 13-year-old son, and an 11-year-old daughter who turns 12, I believe, next week or in 10 days. 
And so, yes, you're about to hit. You're, you've not been around the Fromm family in the middle, early to mid-May as uh, of us five, three of us have birthdays within an 11-day span. So That's amazing. Yes, I am May 4th. Emily is May 11th. <gasps> Uh, May 12th, I'm sorry, and Carrie is May 15th. All We've right talked about this because your birthday is Star Wars Day. May the 4th yes, be yes. with you. That's exciting. And then we've got all those birthdays with each other. And then for good measure, Mother's Day gets thrown in. That's you got to throw Mother's wonderful. Day in there. Yep. I'm always like, well, I'm going to get you one gift. That never goes over well. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not a good move, Brian. <laughs> but anyway, as parents uh, – the question is always raised to us. Uh, you know, we think about it ourselves, but also as pastors, people will ask us these types of questions like, how do I raise my kids to follow Jesus? How do I raise my kids yeah. intentionally yeah. in such a way so that their faith carries on? And and I'll be honest, I'm sure you feel this way. It's both an opportunity uh, and just um, it's a fear. Like there's some mm. fear there. Like, am I going to screw this up? What's going to happen here? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And, and uh, there was, while thinking about this at the religion news service, there was this article, which she writes at a blog, Jaina Rice, uh, Reese called flunking sainthood. That's a fabulous title. Is that a great name? Uh, it says this parent, like your religion depends on it. She goes on to say successful religious parents don't just drop their kids off at church and then expect someone else there will take care of everything. Instead, they lead by example. So how do you or you and Kevin wrestle with this about how do we raise kids, the day-to-day craziness of parenting with yeah. some sort of intentionality so that they understand the faith and uh, and that we're leading by example? How do you wrestle with this? So I feel like we're we're good at this in some seasons and we're not good at this in other seasons. And that's just real. Like, you know, every day uh, on the way to school, we pray for our kids. We ask them what they want prayer for. We try to remind them that, like, God hears our prayers and we can mm. go to God with any even like even like, hey, I want the school day to go by quickly. That's usually my kids <laughs> prayer. God, pray to ask God that it'll go fast. You know, so we pray about that and just and then at the end of the day, if I'm if I'm mindful, I try to remind them, hey, remember those things we pray about? Did God answer your prayer? Did the day go by fast? Did he help you with your test? And you know, just sort of instill that in them, that God hears our prayers and God answers prayers. And then um, I, I will say, I mean, our kids, <laughs> you know, being pastor's kids, this is where you do that fear comes into play, right, Brian? Like, That's right. We're, we're constantly talking about the Bible. We're constantly talking about how to minister to people, how to help people how to think through things theologically and the way different people think through things, depending on where their faith background was from. And Kevin and I try to be very honest with that and not be afraid of our kids' questions and allow them to question. Um, but certainly I want to pass down the faith to them and I I want to do it well. What do you guys do as a family? Yeah, I think you used a really important word and that's honesty. Obviously age-appropriate honesty. Yes, certainly. Uh, but I think uh, especially teenagers, but even younger than that now, they have a really high radar for when you're making stuff up. Uh, and when you're <laughs> That's not so true. Things out. And yep. uh, you know, this article here talks about, they did a study and it said, it said parents are still the most influential drivers of whether their children will grow up to be religious. And that is an ongoing daily thing. And they talk about mm. honesty. I, I think some of the most powerful teaching moments that Carrie and I have had with our children is when we apologize to them or when yeah. we talk to them about our struggles and what our yeah. questions are. And a lot of times as parents, I, I feel like we, we live under this cloud where we think we have to pretend at least that we have everything answered. We've got it all together. And 
And that never goes well. It doesn't go well as pastors to your congregation, but it certainly doesn't go well as parents to your kids. And, and I would also say, like I would, this is hard. I'm going to, I'm going to own this as very difficult, but like okay. I would tell people in church, it's not your job to quote unquote, save other people, right? Mm. As parents, that's also not my job. My job wow. is to love my kids and help them see the gospel and understand it and understand who Jesus is. And ultimately mm. it is God who's going to work in that lives. And it might mm. not be on our timetable. And that's again, a lot easier said than done. Yeah, it is. Um, isn't it? But it's still true. It's still true. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and we have to kind of leave that in God's hands. That's so good. You know, the, I, I've seen some parents, too, who maybe are afraid to, like, force faith or force religion on their kids. And because of that, they end up being really hands-off and almost right. permissive, like letting their kids maybe not go to church or not go to youth group or not read the Bible or not. And, and I don't love that because I still think like you just said, we are parents still have the most influence in our kids' lives, especially in their spiritual formation. We have a, a valuable amount of influence to pour into our kids. And so I think we need to hold that mantle um, really well, like take that mantle seriously. It is our job while our kids are in our home, while they're being formed to pour Jesus into them, to love them really well. When they're adults, we can't control what they're going to do, where they're going to go, the decisions they're going to make, but let's not like shirk off that responsibility. Let's take it seriously. Be disciple makers, um, in our own homes. That's really good. That's really good. So how do we influence your kids for Christ? A fascinating topic, We'll put this article up on our Facebook, Twitter, Instagram at Common Good Talk. Coming up next, one thing we love to do here on The Common Good is a good top five list. Top we're five! One, we're going to do one next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. And Aubrey, one of this show has been going on forever, like an entire three weeks and a day right now. <laughs> and uh, we've, we've added some favorite uh, new segments. We've got some new ones kind of percolating that might be coming. But uh, we've we've enjoyed just doing old school top five lists, right? They're so like, fun. Uh, I love a good top five list. So we've done top five uh, favorite TV shows from when we were kids. I won't talk about that. We did top five concerts we've been Brian. to, top five places we've traveled to in the U.S., all sorts of stuff. You could find those up at our Instagram page. Uh, at Common Good Talk. Oh, yeah, I see we did. I'm reminded that we did top five breakfast cereals. As well. Oh, that, that was, was a fun. good one. I forgot about that one. That was fun. Today, we're going to go into your wheelhouse here. Yes. And we are going to go with top five superheroes. Uh, so I say this is your this. We, your wheelhouse because I'm like sports guy. You're like Marvel person, right? There we like, go. That's I like that. What we are. Yep. Uh, but we're going to do top five superheroes. Uh, before we do that, if you've been listening to this segment, you know that our producer, Debbie, made a great open for it. Let's hear <laughs> it. Here's our top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. 
I can listen to that over and over. I mean, again, right? that I, I want that to be my ringtone. I love it so much. Top five. She's amazing. <laughs> She's amazing. <laughs> All right. It's, since this one's yours, I'm going to let you choose to go first or second. What would you like to do? Oh, I'll go second. I just want to say it is superhero week this week. So this is in honor of superhero day was on a Wednesday and now we're doing this in honor of superhero week. So, okay, Brian, what is your number five superhero or who okay. is your number five superhero? I would say what you're going to see, there's going to be a, a, a thrust in my list of, of older superheroes. Okay. 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 But that is not true for number five by older. I mean like ones from our childhood versus gotcha. now, gotcha. as you know, we have not in the from household. We are just beginning to work our way through the Marvel movies and uh, I think we're eight or nine movies in. And my favorite one of the Marvel movies is going to come in at number five for me, and that being Thor. <gasps> Love Thor. I've Thor will be on Thor. my list, but a, a little bit higher. Yeah, Thor's okay. amazing. Maybe by the end of watching all the Marvel movies, Thor will end, move up for me. But right now, he's he's coming yeah. in at four, at yeah. five. Okay, here's my number five. And I will say my list is very biased towards Marvel. I do like some DC characters, but they're not in my top five. So for people who care, I'm just going to say that. Okay, my number five is the brand new Captain America, Falcon himself, and Bucky. That's uh, two in one, actually. New Captain America (laughs) and Bucky. You're already going two for one. <laughs> I, and I may have just spoiled something for watchers, but Falcon just officially took up the uh, uh, Captain America mantle okay. on the show. And so times are changing. What happened to the original Captain America? Or can, oh, he, can't we oh, share that? I can, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to tell you because you, you're still watching the point. series. Yeah, yeah. And it's important. It matters. Okay. So. Ah, we're never going to finish, but. <laughs> <laughs> All, right, All right, Ryan, what is your number four? Number four for me is Spider-Man. I enjoy Spider-Man and not even like the later movies, although because I didn't watch a ton of them, but I enjoy the Spider-Man movies. But like I'm talking like comic book, old school Spider-Man, but the newer stuff's fine as well. Yeah, I like I like the new Spider-Man. He's hilarious. Okay, that's a good one. Okay, my number four is actually old Captain America. (laughs) (laughs) Love me some Captain America. I can't get enough. Okay, okay. <laughs> Number three is going to be middle of the road, Captain America. <laughs> uh, All right, Brian, who's your number three? Number three, uh, old school, but then also shows up in the Marvel movies. I enjoy Hulk because oh, I, think, Hulk. I think Hulk is 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 a complex character, right? Like, yes. he's not just I'm going to beat on everything and be the strong. I think a very complex character, yeah. and also yeah. back in the Lou Ferrigno days, he was very complex. So I'm going to call. <laughs> I'm going to go with with uh, Hulk. Yeah, Hulk's a good one. I, I like his character because when there's that really famous line where he's they're like, "What's the secret?" He's like, "The secret is I'm always angry." And I think a lot of people <laughs> feel that way. A lot of people can relate to Hulk. Okay, my number three is none other than the master of Wakanda. May he rest in peace, Black Panther. Okay, okay. Uh, I have no opinion other than yes, rest in peace. Uh, yes, but because uh, you're not there yet, you haven't watched Black Panther yet. Oh, you get get ready. You're going to get excited about Black Panther. Okay, okay. See now, I, I, there is a rumor that the Froms are going to watch whatever movie is next. We did watch one over the weekend, Guardians of the Galaxy. The next one, it was really funny. Oh, I, I love the Guardians of the Galaxy. I like superheroes who don't take themselves too too seriously, and they're they're one of those. Yeah, I did enjoy that. Okay, yeah. number two. Uh, you can't have any list without this one. Uh, the superhero of all superheroes. I am going to go with Superman. 
Superman. Okay, that is old school. Good job, Brian. But he's like the original superhero. No, you're kind of right. Superman is the original. I could tell from your. I could tell from your uh, (laughs) how you spoke of that. That Superman is not going to show up on all the Samsons. <laughs> I, yeah, I felt like I was being a little condescending, like patting you on the head, like, okay, good well, job, buddy. So you like Superman. Superman. That's cute of you. <laughs> all right. Number two for me is your number five, Mr. Thor. Okay. The, the god of thunder, Thor. And uh, what? Do, why do you put him above the others? Why do you enjoy him so much? I mean, I like Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> and I mean, he's hilarious. And once you get to Thor Ragnarok, it gets real. Like his storyline okay. gets real good. Yeah. I also, one reason I like Thor and I will always bring it back to sports, right? Uh, so my favorite baseball team, the Mets, they have a pitcher named Noah Syndergaard who oh. has, is very strong, throws the ball very hard and has long flowing blonde hair. Come on. Come and on. For years, his uh, his nickname has been Thor, and the Mets really play it up. Like they hilarious. really play it up. So, He's like a nice god. <laughs> I love it. Okay, drum roll. Here we go. I'm doing my own drum roll. The number one superhero for me, and this has to be your number one superhero. I'm already saying this. Okay, it has okay. to be. Okay. My number one superhero is uh, is Jesus of Nazareth. You ruined the whole thing. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, I was I was trying to put you in a uh, in a difficult spot there. Okay. I really. What can you do after that? (laughs) Uh, Number one superhero going to be controversial. This I mentioned this yesterday. uh, But this is this is all about my childhood and what I used to watch and be obsessed with. But some people do not consider this person a superhero. I say to them, shame on you. You are dead to me. My number one superhero will be and will always be the original Batman. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to tell all your friends about me. What are you? I'm Batman. Wow, that was I thought I love the passion that came with that. That was good. I you're loyal to Batman and there is some controversy loyal. because the question is is he a superhero or is he just a rich guy? A rich guy with jazz, with like lots right. of toys. I think he's a superhero too, though. I'm with you. He is a superhero because not I, every rich person goes out and saves lives. I mean, I will not post this. Uh, I will not post this on our Instagram or Facebook. So don't even ask. But there are many a picture from my childhood of of a Batman underoos, right? Like that's Stop how it. much I loved Batman. <laughs> yes. Those do awesome. exist. They will not be seen, but they do exist. Yeah, those those probably shouldn't be seen. You in a yes. Batman costume, though. That would be funny if you could find that from your childhood. I will I will check it out. Yes. All right, All right number one. This is your one category. Drum roll for me, drum roll. Number one. The only option for number one is the female superhero herself, Captain Marvel, the most powerful of all the Avengers. I've been fighting with one arm tied behind my back. But what happens when I'm finally set free? Okay, I when you see this is how much I'm Ryan, not into Marvel. You when you yeah, said you didn't get excited enough about no, when that. you said the female superhero, I was like, oh, she's going to say Wonder Woman. 
Oh, no, 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 no. Captain Marvel. She's amazing. And her movie, I can't wait for you to watch it. That was like life changing for me because I'd never seen like a a strong female superhero come out of Marvel. And just that representation was very powerful. So that's our list. That is our list. The one Aubrey's been wanting to do. Top five superheroes. I feel like you could have gone like top 15. Like I, I, I could was have. Done. There are a lot. It was hard to cut that list. Big there time. you go. Uh, go to our Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram page at Common Good Talk. You'll see our list there. And we would love to know what you think. Where are we wrong? Where are we right? Where should Jesus have been? And uh, <laughs> we would love to know what you think. We're glad you're joining us today. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us today. Joined, as always, by Aubrey Sampson. And uh, we are thrilled to have you with us. Uh, Aubrey, I'm going to want to watch or listen to a clip here in a minute from one of my favorite preachers and someone who's just fascinating, right? I'm sure you've spent many a, much time listening to Francis Chan, have you? Oh, yeah, he's amazing. Yep. And, and Francis Chan, I mean, he stepped down from a real mega church and then he left the country and is like doing mission work. Uh, Taiwan, maybe, I think. Korea, oh, somewhere. Oh, so I didn't know that. I thought he was still out in California leading his church. Wow. No, this no, This guy no, is no. really, he is living for Jesus. I love it. He is he not is. living for any fame, any popularity. He is like actually submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Yeah, and he'll it's say awesome. controversial things. And yeah, so, you know, like anybody, if you Google him, you're going to find people saying not so nice stuff, but that's what, that's the world we live in. I have huge yep. respect for Francis Chan. In fact, it was one of his sermons that was instrumental to me as we were planting our church, as we were getting going. Oh, I heard him at Exponential cool. and it was great. And so Francis Chan did a video uh, that we can't play the whole thing, but where he talks about unity and kind of this impossible unity, this calling of unity to the church. So let's listen to this clip, Aubrey, and then I want you and I to have a little conversation about unity in the church. Let's listen to it. You see, Jesus prayed in John 17 that everyone who believed in him would become perfectly one, perfectly united, just as the Father and Son are perfectly one. Here we are 2,000 years later, and we are the most divided faith group on earth. And every day it seems to get worse. But what if we tried silence? What about a silent, reverent awe? What if we could humble ourselves? Like everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and died on the cross for their sins. What if we could just silently every morning wake up in awe of who God is? All right. First off, when I hear Francis Chan, I'm like, I want to speak like that guy. <laughs> I, I just want to more like be mentored by him. Like he, yeah. he is so he holds the church to such a high calling and views God 
so with such worship and awe. I'm like, I want to soak that up. Give me some of that anointing. That is like, he's awesome. Yep. That's right. But, uh, but beyond him, this idea of unity, you and I are both pastors. We, we Mm -hmm. long for the church to be effective. We long for the church to display Jesus. Uh, and Jesus himself said in, prayed in John 17 that one of the ways the church will most display him and be effective and be a light in the darkness of our culture is in its unity. Like, I don't think people grasp the depth of importance that Jesus on his last night prayed for the unity of the church, both wow. present and future. Like, that's right. a huge deal. So let's start kind of big picture. When you hear that Jesus prayed for unity, the church mm-hmm. needs to be unified. How do you kind of define or 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 think about the church, uh, the church, if uh, unity? How do you think about unity within the church? Right. I, you know, <laughs> unity is not uh, uniformity. I that's think right. that's key. Uh, we have we have diversity within unity. But Philippians two two comes to mind that uh, we are to be like minded, having the same love, being one of spirit and one of mind. And so mm. somehow I, I I feel like unity has to be one that we're willing to uh, just practically put each other first. Um. Uh, don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And when there are arguments, right? When there are arguments, which there are arguments, obviously if Jesus was praying about this before his deathbed, he knew this was not going to happen naturally, right? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. when we are not unified, let's do, let's make it a priority to do the work to move through our divisions and our difficulty to, um, be that oneness that God called us to be so that our witness can be really, really strong. How do you define unity, Brian? Yeah, I love you use the line that I use all the time when talking about unity in our church. And I talk about this often. Uh, Unity is not uniformity. Mm. Uh, And and I think that's where we get uh, tripped up, right? Well, to be unified, we all have to vote the same. We all have to look the same. We all have to think the same. We have to have the same things that we're passionate about. That is absolutely not the case. And how do we best know that? We look at Jesus's first disciples, right? Yeah. Fisherman, yeah. tax collector, uh, zealot, all of these, they couldn't mm-hmm. have been more different from each other, mm-hmm. but they were unified under the lordship of Jesus. And so I don't think not only does it not mean uniformity, the church was never meant to be uniformed. Like that was, that's not the goal. Yeah, I mean, at even all. in Revelation, the picture we have of when Jesus returns, the church is not uniform. The church is different tribes and different tongues and different, you know, ethnicities worshiping Jesus together. And that's just one picture of what it looks like to be unified, that's but right. beautifully diverse. Yeah. And unity, I was going to ask you, but I'll answer it first is okay. what, what's, what robs us of unity, what makes it so difficult is the fact that we are people. <laughs> <It's> the <laughs> fact that. We are fallen people who uh, who tend towards people like us, who get defensive when people have different ideas than us. Yes, yes. We are not naturally unified people, and and that's what makes it difficult. So, Aubrey, let's end it this way: if if unity is difficult, Uh and unity is prioritized by Jesus, like literally says that they will that they that people will know that you are my followers by your unity, right? Like if. If it's if those are both true mm-hmm. and we live in a divided world and a divided culture increasingly, mm-hmm. then how does the church, Big C Church, but also our local churches, how do we take the steps to actually grow in unity? 
Oh, Brian, you're asking like, wait, what's your phrase? The $64,000 question? Nice. Well yes! played there. Yes. I just got it. You're asking the $64,000 question. I, I'm sitting here looking at 2 Corinthians 13, 11, which says, rejoice, strive for full restoration, encourage one another, be of one mind, live in peace. And then Paul says, and the God of love and peace will be with you. And I feel like there's a few things. One, we need to be uh, rejoicing, worshiping God together so that we remember that we actually are brothers and sisters, right? We're, we're not enemies. We're united under our father who has adopted us as sons and daughters. And so because of that, we are one, right? So we have mm-hmm. that in common. Then that we strive for restoration. Like we're intentional about it when there's division. We're intentional about restoring each other, uh, restoring relationship, that we're intentional about encouraging one another and that we live in peace. And I think sometimes we think of peace as the absence of conflict, but that's not really what peace is. Peace is this, uh, especially biblically, this idea of shalom, that everyone experiences wholeness and goodness and um, the kingdom of God right now. And so I, you know, obviously it is ideal or we wouldn't need Jesus to help us do it. So this is where I go back to like, we got to get on our knees. We got to ask the Holy Spirit for help. And we have to be together in community doing it like in embodied worship, right? Not in online worship. Yeah. Actually doing it, actually going together. Uh, and, and striving for unity and being gracious. Unity is really hard. Otherwise, mm. Jesus wouldn't have had to pray about it. Mm. Uh, yeah. Unity is difficult. But as we read, uh, as we saw in this video earlier on the view, it's beautiful. Like unity is beautiful. And beautiful. It, is, it is a great apologetic to the world uh, around us. Well, coming up next, we are going to end the show the way that we love to with just some good news. We're going to try to put a smile on your face next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you join us today. It's been a fun day. So one of the things we've been trying to do during the pandemic especially is take some time to put a smile on our faces, like not hard hitting news, not deep conversation, just going, hey, we wanted you to hear these stories of the good that's going on in humanity, mm-hmm. of good things people are doing, of things to put a smile on your face. Because sometimes uh, the news or whatever else could just get so, uh, can just get Depressing. so dark. Yeah, yeah it can yeah, just get yeah. so heavy. Uh, yeah. And so there's this wonderful website called the Good News Network. That's goodnewsnetwork.org, where we pull these stories from. We got three or four of them for you today. And then we're going to close the show out. So hopefully this puts a smile on your face. Aubrey, ladies first, why don't you choose and go first? Okay, I love this one. This is a six-year-old skateboarding phenom from Australia. Her name is Paige Tobin. And she, uh, let's see, the article says, for this mighty girl dizzying 12-foot drops are a piece of cake. The pint-sized powerhouse recently beat out the competition in the nine and under category to win the King of Concrete Skateboard Test contest in Melbourne, Australia. She began skating at age Two, she's met with some professional skaters like Tony Hawk, Sky Brown, and um, you can watch her video if you want to on Instagram, Paige Tobin. It is going viral, but it's just amazing watching this little six-year-old beat out the competition and beat out these older skaters that are there. So that's really cute, a really heartwarming story. 
not only is it heartwarming, but what people need to see, and I've, I have two daughters who at some point, you know, were six years old. Yeah. The fact that this girl is beating, you know, these nine year olds or whatever else in doing it in a pink princess dress with a leopard yes. helmet. I forgot to say that's the most important part. She's wearing this cute little pink, like tulle dress and a leopard helmet and just like owning the skateboard park. It's amazing. You've had lots of great things about only having sons. The one thing you probably missed was the princess dress stage, where at oh. all moments you have to wear a princess dress. And so Brian. this is so on brand. It makes me want to for, cry. I missed that. This, this is, is so on so, brand, though, for little girls, right? For a six-year-old girl, even when skateboarding, to wear a pink princess dress is so on brand. Because I have more pictures of my daughters at that age being muddy and dirty and in a princess dress. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I love okay, it. Okay. Next one. Family builds giant dinosaur from takeout containers during hotel quarantine. They named it Bagasaurus. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. A new species of dinosaur was recently discovered in a hotel room in Australia. While the origins of the most recognizable dino specimens date back to the Mes Mesozoic era, the Bagasaurus is entirely a product of parental ingenuity in the age of COVID. Carly Catalano knew that moving from British Columbia to Australia uh, with their three-year-old daughter and her partner during the pandemic would mean undergoing a mandatory 14-day hotel room quarantine. Facing two weeks in tight quarters with an active toddler was a situation that demanded creative thinking. Mm -hmm. Working takeout bags and containers, some disposable cutlery, an ironing board, and other miscellaneous items, the family began construction of its very own do-it-yourself dinosaur. Uh, and you need to see this. It's a five feet tall <laughs> They said it adores little girls who dress up in matching paper bag scaled outfits. Uh, and it's an, her an herbivore or would be if it actually ate the homegrown sprouts. Florence offers her paper mache pet on a regular basis. This is another that little is girl that so we cool. another little girl would go doing little girl things, taking the bags. And you've got to see these pictures. They are unbelievable. Yeah, that bag of source is amazing. Yeah, they just decided, hey, we're going to be locked up for 14 days. We got to do the best of it. And they created Bagasaurus. Cool story. Very cool story. Okay, here's another one. Uh, the greatergood.org actually invited a bunch of high school and college seniors to record a video that answers the question, how did the coronavirus change your senior year? They had 379 students worldwide from 49 countries participate, but a 19-year-old film student stole the hearts of judges in her class of 2020 challenge. And so I wanted to play a clip from her video so that you could hear it. I don't want to leave this global pause if you will, and go back to the way things were. I want to leave and I want to have a heightened appreciation for all the things that make life full. I see more and more people on social media every day inspiring people to do the same, and I want to be one of those people. Someone who creates and finds beauty in even the less favorable hands that life deals us. So from me, to me, to you, uh, graduates and non-graduates, and anyone who is struggling to adjust or who is overcoming losses, both big and small, uh, we got this. 
Okay, so her message was so inspiring. And basically, she's challenging her fellow classmates around the globe to mold the universe into the future that they want to see. She said, I don't want to go back to the way things were. That's before the pandemic. I want to have a heightened appreciation for all the things that make life mm-hmm. full. And That's I cool. just felt like that was so inspiring for all of us as we, you know, the world opens up again. We all want to make sure that we're valuing all of the good things in life. Awesome. That's that's a good story. And high school to hear high school students say that you're like, okay, yes, yes. The, <laughs> you're more future, mature than I am, right? The future is in good hands. Yes, yeah, it is. Uh, last one: affordable housing landlord starts eviction fund and is shocked raising nine million dollars that kept three thousand families in their home. Mm. Uh, when Ma- uh, what's her name, Margie Stagmire was eleven years old. She was the monopoly champion of her sixth grade class, and she knew right there that she wanted to be a landlord when she grew up. Can you imagine being in sixth grade going, I want to be a landlord? Absolutely not. To no, do it. so impressive. Yep. She wanted to do it in a compassionate way. After graduating from Georgia State, she started investing in old affordable apartment communities and quickly realized that many of her renter families were low-income single-parent families who needed services like after-school programs and playgrounds. So in response, she launched a 501c3 that provides free on-site services live, uh, to families living in the affordable apartment communities. And Star C has become a godsend for families. Many children have come through the Star C after school program who are now doctors, plumbers, school teachers, earning good wages, and they move themselves out of poverty. Almost 100 families have elevated from renting to home ownership because we wow. kept rent low so families could save them, save money. A chance meeting in 2017 with Bill and Melinda Gates opened her eyes Even with her rents below market, some of the tenants struggled to pay rent. So she began to build an informal resource network for families to get rental assistance. The story goes on to say that she launched a GoFundMe page even after COVID struck. uh, And uh, different counties in that area started giving money to it, other municipalities. And Star C has now raised over $9 million from governments and foundations, giving the ability to help over three thousand families avoid eviction. Aubrey, this is like the essence of the Good News Network. People That's doing good amazing. things for people who could really use this sort of help. And then they then they go to pay it forward. Uh, just uh, that is the Good News Network. That's a heartwarming story, is it not? Oh, it's so <laughs> it's so inspiring. It's so it's something we're celebrating. I love hearing that in the middle of so much what feels just like we said before, dark, heavy news that someone is actually making a difference in their corner of the world. It's powerful. So the goodnewsnetwork.org, a great place to go. Well, we're glad that you joined us today. All sorts of great content. Go find it on our podcast. Just listen to the podcast and find out why Aubrey didn't think that Jesus should be in the superhero list. I'm just <laughs> saying. Brian, stop throwing me under the bus. <laughs> <laughs> but lots of great stuff. Go back and listen to the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. We're thrilled that you joined us today. Join us tomorrow from four until six. Until then, my name is Brian Fromm, and I've been joined by Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life.